When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Our guest today is historian Margaret Washington. She's professor of history and American studies at Cornell University. Her work on the cultural, intellectual, and religious history of Black Americans has earned her awards and fellowships from Cornell University, Wesleyan University, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Besides speaking at high schools, summer institutes, museums, parks, and local libraries, Dr. Washington has contributed to numerous documentaries for PBS, the Discovery Channel, and the History Channel. Her book, Sojourner Truth's America, was a guide for us not only in following Sojourner Truth's story, but in seeing spiritualism within the big picture of American life. Researcher Carl Nellis talked with Dr. Washington for this season of Unobscured. They began their conversation with her perspective on what it meant to be a spiritualist in 19th century America. This is the Unobscured interview series for season two. I'm Aaron Mankey. If you were a spiritualist in the 19th century, you looked upon life after death as a continuation of contact with humans, especially your loved ones. It was a situation where your contact with people who had passed beyond the veil could be instructive. It could be warnings. But there was this contact with people who had gone on. It wasn't a break with earthly life and then life in the beyond. So the first important aspect of spiritualism was this contact between humans uh, who had been left uh, to mourn and people who had passed on into the spirit world. Sometimes those contacts were loving. Sometimes uh, they were foreboding, but the most important thing is that there was this contact. And it took all kinds of forms depending on 
who the person was or people you were maintaining your contact with who had passed on? When people were coming to a seance, they weren't a medium, say, but they wanted to take part in the spiritualist practices. What kinds of things were they looking for? What kind of variety was there in motivations to attend a seance? Everyone had different motivations. Some people went for curiosity. Other people went for a specific goal. There was someone in particular whom they wanted to have contact with, and so they were hoping that the medium could channel that individual who had passed on into some kind of consciousness so that the living person could communicate with them. And that was what the majority of people wanted. They wanted contact with mostly a loved one, but sometimes it wasn't even a loved one. It was a politician. A lot of spiritualists, especially the more radical ones, for example, had uh, seances in which John Quincy Adams, who in the, the late antebellum era, which ends in 1861, uh, John Quincy Adams was sort of the champion from a political perspective of abolitionism. So when he died, a lot of uh, spiritualists would recall him and uh, get his advice on what was happening in the world politically. So when you think about it like that, spiritualism is not so much about faith as it is about politics. But those were the kinds of positions that people took. And even with Abraham Lincoln, after he passed away, people channeled him. Then the radical, the white radical John Brown, the person who inspired Harper's Ferry, was also channeled after he was executed. So it took a lot of forms. So that's interesting. When spiritualists were channeling these kind of these statesmen, political figures, what does that tell us about the way that spiritualists related to the past or to history? Well, spiritualists were radicals. They were people, aside from their faiths, uh, and in many cases, I think this is important, in many cases, even though they were I don't want to call them religious because they sort of avoided doctrine, but they were very spiritually oriented. Even though that was the case, many of them were not affiliated with any particular church because they felt the churches were corrupt and the churches promoted evil practices, such as the practice of slavery. So a lot of people did not see spiritualism specifically as something that was associated with their faith as much as it was associated with social life. One of the most important aspects of having a successful social life was to have free will. For example, if you were enslaved, you had no free will. You didn't have the free will to go to church. You didn't have the free will to raise your own children. You didn't have the free will to be with a husband. Indeed, you didn't have the free will to have a legal husband or wife. These were the kinds of issues that spiritualism opposed with the churches. I guess you would say they were not religious people, even though they were very upright people and very spiritual people. One of the movements that kind of seeded the ground for spiritualism was a kind of a utopian or a collectivist impulse among many of these radicals to form model communities or kind of sanctuary communities over the course of her life. Sojourner is involved in Northampton, 
Hopedale, and there are others, Fruitlands, the United Community, Brook Farm. Could you talk a little bit about what was going on with these utopian or communalist kind of impulses that were bringing people to these places? There were, I think, a myriad of differences between the utopian communities. Not all of them were spiritualist. Fruitlands, the one that was founded by Bronson Alcott, was not spiritualist. The Shaker communities were, and the ones that Sojourner Truth became involved in were, except, as you mentioned, you mentioned Northampton. Well, Northampton had many spiritualists in it, but it was not a spiritualist community. It was more of a, I guess you'd say it was basically an abolitionist commune is what it was. One of the things that united these utopian communities was a belief in the power of spiritualism, even if they weren't founded for that particular purpose. The sojourner, when she went to Northampton, she found a home for her spiritualism there, even though it was an abolitionist community. When she moved to Michigan in, I believe it was 1857, she actually settled in a spiritualist community. And so there were spiritualist communities, especially in the West, or what we call today the Midwest. At that point, she did want the spiritual connection in terms of her daily life. So Harmonia, which was outside of Battle Creek, Michigan, was a spiritualist community. They all weren't founded on the basis of spiritualism, but they all embraced the ideas of spiritual contact with the other world. At that point in the 1840s and 50s, we're pretty well into Sojourner's life. Um, let's go back to the beginning with her. She's, she's not born Sojourner Truth, of course. Taking on both parts of that name is really significant to her life story. But let's start at the beginning. She was born into slavery in New York before the 19th century dawned. So she's a, a generation or two older than many of the other women that we're going to be following for this series, talking about spiritualism, the Fox sisters, Cora Hatch, Victoria Woodhull, Emma Britton. How was the New York of her childhood different from the New York of the 1840s and 50s? She would say, and actually she did say, that when she was born, there were no ships, there were no steamboats. It was a whole different world. She pointed out in her talks in the 1840s and 50s, that she was now living in the, what she called the modern world, uh, but she had uh, been born and raised in a world that in many ways was not even connected to what she considered modernity in the antebellum era. So it was very backward in a lot of ways. So during the truth, grew up not wearing shoes. If you can imagine living in rural Hudson Valley, New York, in the wintertime and not having shoes but that was the fate of the enslaved African Dutch people where she grew up. And that was pretty much her fate until she became a Christian and obtained her freedom. She was born in 1797. So basically, she's kind of an 18th century woman in that sense. And so that makes her quite different from the people who were going to become her comrades in the movements that she became involved in. Also, I think it's important to Note that her background is Dutch as opposed to English. That made a difference at that point. There weren't that many Dutch. Most of the Dutch were centered in New York in the Hudson Valley. But it was a group of people, it was an ethnicity that they kept to themselves. And um, they spoke Dutch. 
She spoke Dutch until she was in her late 20s, and it was quite a different culture. She was not given religious instruction as a child or even as a young woman, so she didn't have the religious background that a lot of African Americans, even enslaved ones, who had English mistresses and uh, masters had. So in some ways, that made her kind of like a vessel for Christianity. But on the other hand, it gave her kind of a circumspection about accepting everything. And that, along with the, um, we think that at least she said that her grandmother was born in Africa and her husband's grandmother was born in Africa. And spiritualism has interesting connections to what we call Africanity, the idea of people Connecting to the other world was something that Africans took as just common, just the way it was. There really was no break between the earthly life and the life of the beyond. That made spiritualism something that she essentially gravitated toward. And as she would say, she was practicing it before she even knew that there was something called spiritualism. You write so beautifully in the book about West African traditions that weren't broken by the introduction of Christianity into West Africa and that Belle drew on in her early life. Can you talk about them maybe in particular in relationship to when Belle, because she was born Isabella, right? Mm-hmm. When she lost her father, how did his death shape her life and her spiritual perspective? She was very close to her father, who was the headman for this massive landowning family who at one point in their history, if you can believe this, owned two million acres of New York land. Their father was a head man. He was highly respected. He was half Mohawk. In spite of the fact that he was highly respected by his owners, and as a matter of fact, after his owner died, he wrote that he was called Bomfrey, which was a combination of the Dutch word bomb and the English word free. Free tree, bomb meaning tree. So he was supposed to be taken care of once his owner passed away, and he left instructions for that. And the record shows that for three or four years after the owner passed away, the owner's sons did take care of him. Then it's pretty clear that they're not taking care of him, and then he, his wife has died. Belle's mother has passed away. So he's basically being led around from pillar to post. He loses his eyesight, and she is enslaved by other people, and she has to go from one place to another to find him. This goes on for a number of years, and they were very close. She and her younger brother were the only two remaining children that they were allowed to keep, and the others, 10 or 12, had been sold away. She was very close to her father, When he was sort of left to fend for himself, she would find him in various places, and he would bemoan his fate. And she told him that this was her prediction, that they were going to get their freedom pretty soon, and she would take care of him. And, of course, he died before that happened, and she was devastated by his death. He froze to death alone. And the family, the Dutch family called the Hardenbergs, wanted to recognize his faithful service. They didn't recognize his service when he was alive, and it could have helped him. But after he 
died, they wanted to have a funeral, which was highly unusual. Dutch people didn't have funerals for former slaves, but in recognition of old Bomfrey's service to the family, they wanted to have a funeral. They invited all of the African Dutch people into the area for the funeral, and they had, he got a box, that is to say, he was buried in a a coffin, a pine box. The funeral consisted of this pine box and lots of rum. And that was sort of a highfalutin funeral for a slave. For Belle, it was so disgusting. She remembered that. She always said that throughout her life, she and her father talked to each other. She maintained that she was channeling her father on many occasions. She actually, when she went to the Utopian community, she visited Utopian communities in the West, and she gave a talk about her father at one of them. I believe it was in Wisconsin. Yes, it was a Wisconsin Utopian community where she spoke about what had happened. That's where she gave the story of old Bomfrey and how she channeled him whenever things got really difficult for her. It's an interesting story because with her father, according to her, being half Mohawk, then you've got the indigenous spiritualism involved in it too. But that was very important to her. He was her shining light. She makes this very clear in her narrative of how important he was to her. Would you tell the story of Belle emancipating herself and walking to freedom? She was a hardworking young woman. She worked in the house. She worked in the yard. She worked in the fields. She milked cows. She fed the chickens. She cooked. She cleaned. According to her owners, the man who owned her for 18 years, John Dumont, according to his daughter, she was the champion cradler, wheat cradler, in their neighborhood. She could throw the wheat up in the air and have it wrapped before it hit the ground. That was Belle, and we get a sense of that from her famous Akron, Ohio speech, where she talks about all the work she did. That was very important. She was a hardworking person, and her owner used to say that she was better to him than a man, and he promised her her freedom early because she worked so hard. In her zeal to continue to work hard under this promise of freedom, she cut off her index finger with a scythe while she was working. That meant that she couldn't work as hard, but she continued to work. The time came for her owner, Dumont, to uh, honor his promise of freedom to her. The state of New York had decreed that in 1827, all adults enslaved people would be free. He had promised to free her early, a year early before that. So she went to him in 1826 to claim her promise. And he said, oh, no, I can't do that because you didn't work as hard as you were supposed to. She said, well, I had a diseased hand. I couldn't. He says, well, you still didn't do it, so I'm not going to honor my promise. So Belle was distressed, and she had created a little island in the middle of the river, and that was where she would go and talk to God. She had no religious instruction except what her mother gave her, and her mother's religious instruction was a kind of mysticism, where you speak to God and God speaks back to you. She went to her little island area, and she asked God, 
what she should do because uh, he had broken his promise and God told her she should leave. She said, well, how can I leave? They'll see me. And God told her to leave just before daybreak when everyone was still asleep. She did. She had an infant, a nursing infant. She took her infant and she fled. She went to the home of a Quaker who was unable to help her, but he sent her to someone who did help her, who was also a Dutchman. He said that he would intercede on her behalf. And so when Dumont came for her and told her that she had to come back, she said, I'm, I'm not going because uh, you broke your promise and you owe me this year of service. He threatened to take her to jail. And she said, okay, I'll go to jail, but I will not go back with you. And then the uh, Dutchman who had offered her sanctuary, whose name was Isaac Van Wagenen, interceded and he said, how much does Bell owe you? He gave him $20 for the remainder of Bell's year and $5 for Bell's baby. That is how she got her freedom. And she took the name of Van Wagenen, and so she became Isabella Van Wagenen until she became Sojourner mm-hmm. Truth. Can you describe how the role in her life that her faith, that her talking with God, that her following, her, her guiding light, her father, what role did that faith, that spirituality, that spiritual practice play in, in the course of the next year or two when she was fighting to get her son back? That was probably, she would call that her moment of sanctification. She had been converted after she left Dumont and she went to live with the Van Wagenens. She had, uh, well, what, what we call in the Baptist church, she backslid. God had helped her obtain her freedom. She was very thankful, but now she wanted to go back to bondage to basically participate in a festival called the Pinkster Festival. She was willing to go back to her former owner's farm to participate in this revelry. It's a very, very uh, important festival among the African Dutch people. Actually comes out of Dutch religious culture, but the African Dutch made it their own. This was essentially her not being thankful for what God had done for her. And so at that point, when she was trying to go away to uh, celebrate with her friends and drink and party and have a good time, that's when she had her first epiphany uh, and her first conversion, when God struck her. As she said, uh, God burnt me and made me wilt like a cabbage leaf. She didn't go, but she did realize that... uh, her conversion meant that there were certain activities that she no longer engaged in. So that was her conversion. Her sanctification came after the conversion when uh, the man she was staying with, Mr. Van Wagenen, came home and told her that he had heard that her child, her son, five-year-old son, who was still in bondage, had been sold. And this was something that was very common in New York. New York uh, children were still enslaved. And so New York slave owners, so that they wouldn't lose their profit, were selling these children to the South, which was illegal. And that's what had happened to her boy. And she was outraged. And this this is our second sense of 
what a powerhouse this woman is going to be. The first one is when she challenges her owner and flees. The second one is when she will not accept the fact that her son has been sold. And, mm-hmm. and she basically campaigns all over the neighborhood of Ulster County, riling people about this, and especially the Quakers, because it is against the law. Um, but what enslaved woman has the wherewithal to challenge the slave power? Well, Belle mm-hmm. did, and, um, and she got help from the Quakers, and she eventually was able to get her son back, but she raised a huge ruckus. A lot of the slaveholders were angry with her uh, for having done this, and so she felt very, she felt very compromised, very vulnerable. Um, but she had told them that she was going to get her son back, and um, the owners had said, you can't get him back. But she, with the help of the Quakers, it's a, it's a very convoluted story, but the Quakers were adamantly anti-slavery, and they helped her get a lawyer and eventually get this boy back. Within a year, he was back. And when she got him back, she went to court and got him back, he was covered with bruises. He told her that uh, the man who had purchased him, who was also a New Yorker who had moved to Alabama, had 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 his horse hoof the boy. The boy, her son's name was Peter, in the face. He had a big gash in his forehead where the man's horse had hoofed him, and and he showed her all the bruises on him, and she was so angry that she asked God for retribution. And she told him to render unto them double for everything they had done to her son. Uh, That was, uh, as far as she was concerned, that was her curse that she was Mm. leveling against this family. And within a few months, this uh, this was her sanctification as far as she was concerned. She had asked God to curse this family. Within a few months, the woman who was married to the man who had sold her son and brutalized him, was killed by her husband in in a a very brutal way. He basically, according to uh, the narrative, he had cut her windpipe out in a drunken Mm. fit. He was an alcoholic. It was a a double whammy because her son, Peter, Bell's son, had told her that the only person who was nice to him while he was there in Alabama, was this young woman, Miss Eliza, Mm. who was also a New Yorker. Uh, But she had tried to help the little boy and had said she wished that he could go back to his mother. In a way, you know, she was innocent. Uh, I mean, she had married a a New Yorker who had become a slaveholder, and they were living in Alabama, but she was trying to help uh, Peter. Nonetheless, when Peter was brought back to New York, the owner, the the former owner, her husband was so angry, and he was an alcoholic anyway, that he took it out on her and killed her. And when Isabella, when Belle heard this, she said, this is what God is doing on my behest, but I didn't mean for God to go that far. And the fact that that this young woman had died and that Belle had asked God to curse the family 
to her was God's way of, I guess, giving her a a special dispensation. Even though she said, the language of my heart was, I didn't mean for you to do so much, God, but I couldn't question God. So for her, that put her in a higher state of spirituality. So she went from being converted to being sanctified. Mm. And she told this story uh, on the lecture circuit in New York City where she, she, she left uh, Ulster County, um, the Hudson Valley, within a year after her son was returned. And she told that story over and over again. And it made her a popular preacher in New York City. Uh, a revival preacher. So even before she became Sojourner Truth, as Isabella Van Wagenen, she was preaching in New York City and telling her experience of of conversion and sanctification. So that was her her background uh, before she became uh, the woman whom we would come to know. Well, and I'm interested more in that time because as she's working and preaching in New York City through the 1830s, um, she's working with people like, she meets people like David Ruggles, um, and she's really preaching social reform. Um, can you talk a little bit about what life in New York City was like at that time? Who was Sojourner addressing? Who was she preaching to? Well, when she went to New York, the Methodists heard her preach in um, Ulster County, where she uh, was born and raised. And they essentially said, you know, you're, your message is too important for you to be here. So they took her there. Uh, they found a, a Methodist, I can't call him a preacher because he was not accepted by the church. These people were out, they were Methodists who were shunning the Methodist church because they felt the Methodist church was becoming too respectable. So these were the people that she hooked up with as soon as she got to New York City, uh, people who were dissenting from the Methodist Church, Methodists who were dissenting from Methodism. And so that's where um, she got her contact. And New York City was a vibrant place for African Americans, but uh, it was also a tragic place because it was a, a, a situation where African American adults were converging onto the city um, because that represented freedom and it represented mobility and it represented opportunity, but they had to leave their children, uh, just as uh, Belle had to leave uh, her children. She left her daughters, but she took her son. She took her little boy with her, but the others uh, remained uh, in Ulster County. And so New York's uh, black population, which was very large, found that there were opportunities to learn to read. Uh, there were opportunities to set up your own churches, but there were very few jobs other than domestic work. Uh, and so that's what, uh, that's what they did, uh, a, lot, a lot of domestic work. But it was a very uh, impoverished situation for free black people in New York City uh, at that time. Um, and in many ways, it would only get worse as far as the socioeconomic situation was concerned. But that would give rise to a very vibrant political culture on the part of African Americans to challenge this. So uh, it was a, a time of hope, uh, and it was a time in many cases of despair. People uh, in Bell's situation, that is, 
women coming out of the farming areas trying to get jobs often found themselves sometimes doubling as, as sex workers. Um, it was, a, it was a, sometimes living uh, in slum situations. And if they were domestics, almost always, 90 to 95% of the time, living in the home of their employer, um, which meant that they were on call all the time. So mm. it's a very confining life. As a matter of fact, a lot of the black leadership encouraged people, black people, to stay in the countryside and not come to the city uh, because they were crowding into the cities. Uh, there weren't enough jobs. Uh, it was a kind of hopelessness. Uh, but people were determined to uh, make a better life, and so they were coming anyway. And so she was part of that movement uh, of people coming into the city. And so she was determined to um, make a better life for herself. And uh, I, I, I guess I should point out that she did have a husband, but she left him um, when he wouldn't come with her because he was an adult. He was free. He would not come with her. So she left. Mm. Um, and she was determined to not be a casualty of the city. And she says that I refuse to bow to the filth of the city. And she had, in a way, she had sort of a, a protective um, group around her because these Methodists were so interested in her that uh, they helped her find a position. And then she also worshipped with them. So um, her, I guess she had a kind of specialness about her because of her experiences, because of her capacity to communicate, keeping in mind that her English is not very good. Mm. But she's able to communicate with them, even with her broken English and her Dutch brogue, in a way so that they find her incredibly inspiring. Uh, and she becomes a revivalist preacher. Uh, and I don't know how many African Americans she reached um, because she was a, a, a countrywoman. And so there wouldn't be much respect. For, and, and, of course, she couldn't read and write. And she was Dutch. Um, so there wouldn't be much respect for that. But as far as these Methodists who were coming into the city were concerned, her witness was so powerful uh, that, as one person said, uh, everybody in the city was running after her. Mm. So... So um, how does she go from being uh, a Methodist revival preacher to joining the kingdom of Matthias? Um, the kingdom of Matthias members were Methodists. Mm. Um, they were fringe Methodists. The Methodist church, as I mentioned before, was becoming respectable. Um, and... The people who were involved in cult groups like uh, Matthias, and Matthias's group was not the only one. Um, a lot of the, uh, we, we call these people perfectionists, uh, and a lot of the perfectionist organizations that grew out of this started in the Methodist church. Uh, none of them went as far as the kingdom of Matthias, but if you consider the Oneida community, Mm. Um, in Oneida, New York, 
they had many of the same religious principles that Matthias had. They had multiple marriage, um, which was really the, the hallmark uh, in terms of outrage uh, with the Matthias uh, uh, commune. But that was not unusual with these French cults. Mm. So they all started out as Methodists. The Methodist uh, uh, religion was, they called themselves when it was first founded, the religion that warms the heart. And when it was initially founded, it was opposed to slavery. Uh, they believed in salvation being open to everyone. So it was, it was an egalitarian denomination. By the late 1820s, the Methodists wanted to become just like high church. They wanted to become like Presbyterians and Congregationalists. And so the features of Methodism that had made it a religion that warms the heart, they wanted to divest the church of those. Uh, so there would be no clapping, no loud singing, uh, all the things that uh, made Methodism a religion of expression, those uh, were left by the wayside. Um, and concern for the poor, those were left by the wayside. And so people who were Methodists objected to this. So they left the Methodist church uh, and founded these uh, little perfectionist cells. And the Matthias kingdom grew out of one of those. Mm. And so Bell was a Methodist. And she was the kind of person, I think it's, she was the kind of person who she lived on the fringe. Uh, and so when her friends began to question the Methodist church in favor of helping like wayward women, mm. um, going into the slums of Five Points and uh, helping people, these kinds of uh, activities that the church had been involved in previously, they wanted to continue that. And so uh, it, it's her early reform. And it, it, is, it is important to see these fringe groups as reformists mm. because they were, and they were also opposed to slavery. Mm -hmm. So um, the Matthias Commune was uh, an extreme of uh, dissension within the Methodist church, but it wasn't the only one. Mm. Uh, they went farther than a lot of others, uh, but um, still, you, you have to see them within the tradition of people like um, uh, the founder of Oneida, John Humphrey Noyes. Um, his organization, uh, which grew out of the Methodist and the Congregational Church, also believed in a multiple marriage and spirit matching. Um, and Bell was a spiritualist. Mm. So the idea uh, of, um, which was germane to a lot of um, these fringe organizations coming out of the churches, the idea that your spirit match is more important than your legal marriage, they felt that this was uh, supported by Scripture. And um, Matthias took it to another level, um, but he wasn't the only one who did that. Can you describe the way that her experience in the kingdom of Matthias uh, influenced Bell's thinking going forward? What did she take away from that experience? Um, for one thing, I think it further empowered her um, because 
she was targeted uh, by the the uh, woman in the Matthias commune who um, basically owned the mansion that they lived in and uh, was the one who was actually sleeping with Father Matthias. Um, she had targeted Bell as the person who was responsible for the death of one of the other cult leaders when, in fact, he had uh, died of a fit. But uh, she did this to deflect blame uh, from and to cover up her sexuality with Matthias. So she wanted to put the blame on the colored woman. And that would make sense to the average white New Yorker because uh, part of the attitudes toward black women uh, was that they were loose women. I mean, that was just common um, thought. And so that's what she played on. So Belle was in a vulnerable position. She essentially had not done anything uh, except believe in uh, the significance of the, uh, the cult. The woman who had basically committed adultery um, was trying to deflect the blame and um, Bell had the wherewithal to see what was going on, and she was undaunted. And she says, it's a wonderful quote, I've got the truth on my side, and I can crush them with the truth. <laughs> and so she was prepared to go to court. They were going to have a trial because um, after exhuming this man's body, uh, they believed that he had been poisoned, and the victim, the poison, the 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 culprit, appeared appeared to be Belle, according to uh, the adulteress and her husband, um, and so Belle was completely ready to follow that trajectory because she knew it, where it was going to lead. It was going to lead to the city of New York seeing that one of their own upper-class women was actually the adulteress. Um, and so she was prepared. And the, one of the ways in which she got prepared is um, she went to an editor and told her story of the commune, um, which, which uh, I'm in the process of, of um, re, re, reproducing, republishing um, her story of what happened. Mm. Um, and it is amazing the kinds of, her, her recall is impeccable um, and it can be borne out by historical fact that uh, what was going on in this, this particular commune, commune it's, the newspapers are, are also important in this, but she is adamant that uh, she can prove that she has done nothing wrong um, and that um, this was something that was planted because of race and, uh, and, and the cultural opprobrium that African-American women experienced in American society. So she was up to the task. She sued them for defamation of character. Mm. And she won. Mm -hmm. And so when she says, I can crush them with the truth, that's exactly what she did. Uh, this um, narrative of the, the goings-on in the kingdom, were the, the, the narrative was published. Um, she won the suit. 
and the uh, adulteress's husband, who had basically uh, slandered her, had to pay, uh, I think, $25 or $35 to her for slandering her and apologize. Um, but on the downside, this was in all the newspapers. Mm-hmm. And, and she was a revival preacher. So she was known in the community. And um, that affected her reputation. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. Uh, and even though she was, the, the uh, trial that occurred, uh, they stopped it and dismissed the charges before they allowed her to testify. Um, and she never, she was never charged with anything because they didn't want her to go to the witness stand <laughs> uh, after this book came out. Yeah. And so they dropped the charges on everyone. So she was exonerated, but her reputation had suffered. Mm. And more importantly, what she found out and what she, she basically articulated was that she had allowed the charlatan to dictate the words of the, uh, the scripture to her. And um, he would read and then he would interpret the reading. And she believed his interpretation. And, uh, and she never forgave herself for that. Uh, and as a result of that, she decided that she would never, first of all, never ask an adult to read the Bible to her, only children. And secondly, she would never accept anyone's interpretation of the Bible except her own. Hmm. So that, that the, the, uh, the situation with Matthias was over by 1838. Uh, it was still going to be almost five years before she was going to claim uh, her name of Sojourner Truth. Mm-hmm. So she stayed in the city uh, and, uh, and did her preaching and her prayer meeting and her working, uh, but she was never as engaged in reform efforts as she was before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when does, when does Isabella Van Wagenen become Sojourner Truth, and what's that process like for her? Um, part of it has to do with her son, Peter, who grew up in the city um, with her and became, uh, a, oh, I guess you'd say he just really, really was, Peter was a little gangster. Um, and that caused her a tremendous amount of angst. But uh, in, in one way, he landed on his feet. Uh, in another way, he ended tragically. But in terms of landing on his feet, the... Um, pastor of uh, a prominent uh, Episcopal church who was also a very important black activist, his, his role in the community was to help young black boys um, get a foothold in life. And one of the ways in which young black boys did that was to go to sea. Forty percent of uh, the seamen in America at this time were black. And so um, it was a way for parents to get their sons out of harm's way while they matured. And then when they came back, if they came back, um, then uh, they would be able to handle life. So Peter uh, Williams' job was to find seamen positions for boys who uh, would be, were in trouble. And so that's what saved Peter 
Um, and he went off to sea in 1839, wrote his mother beautiful letters, um, and um, was coming back a changed man, but he never came back. He was due to come back in 1843, mm. and he did not come back. Um, I traced the ship that he was on, and it had some issues. One of the issues was smallpox. Another issue was a mutiny. And he wrote her and said that he had been uh, disciplined for trying to help people on the boat. And um, he um, was had gotten in trouble, but he was okay now. And that was the last letter she got from him. So he either succumbed to smallpox, maybe he was uh, beaten. Uh, we don't know, but he never came back. He was due to come back in 1843. And I think that that is telling because that is the same time when she leaves the city mm. and becomes Sojourner Truth. So I think it's a, she's already very distressed. Um, she's not making as much spiritual progress as she was like. She's confused, uh, but she's there waiting for her son. And her son does not come back. And uh, in May of 1843, the noted literary um, author, who is now the uh, editor of the New York City uh, anti-slavery newspaper, the Anti-Slavery Standard, writes this little article in the Standard about a colored woman giving a speech at the colored Methodist church. And it, she says that it is the most profound speech you could imagine. And she says that the colored woman was born in New York slavery. Um, and she talked about her experiences uh, as a slave. And, and it was extremely powerful. Well, two weeks later, Sojourner Truth is in Brooklyn as Sojourner Truth. Mm. And so... I'm positive that the woman that Lydia Mariah Child is writing about in the standard is Sojourner Truth. Um, and uh, by the way, Lydia Mariah Child and Sojourner Truth become very good friends uh, in the, the anti-slavery movement, in the women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, so these events, Peter's uh, um, scheduled return, which doesn't happen, that's in uh, the spring of 1843. The little speech at the Colored Methodist Church is in May of 1843. And in May of 1843, she takes the Brooklyn Ferry to Long Island. Uh, and that's there she meets the Quaker and tells the Quaker her name is Sojourner. And the Quaker says, well, do you have another name? And she says, well, uh, no, I, I don't. And she says, well, everybody has two names. Um, and after a lot of consideration, she uh, settles on the name of Truth because um, that is, uh, Truth is another name for God. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the power of that, uh, that sermon. What do we know about Sojourner's preaching? I mean, she starts really traveling uh, when she takes the, the name Sojourner, and She's an itinerant preacher uh, through the 1840s and 50s, and, and 
really for the rest of her life, even when she has kind of a home base, she's she's traveling right. to to preach mm-hmm. and teach. Can you describe what it would have been like to hear Sojourner preach in the 1840s, 1850s? Well, um, I guess, let me think about some of her speeches. Um, we have some because uh, people would write them down on the newspapers. Uh, she was a powerful woman in the sense that she used, first of all, she used examples from her background, keeping in mind that she couldn't read and write. Um, and so to be a powerful speaker, first of all, you had to, you had to have uh, pathos. You had to have humor. You had to sing. Mm. Uh, and she had a beautiful singing voice, and she would often begin with a song. And um, and then she'd be, then she'd have a prayer, and then she would speak, and uh, her speaking was instructive. She would always talk about her life as a slave, um, and her experience. I mean, her her pat speech had to do with how she got her freedom and how she got her son back. Mm. Um, but then as she became more and more experienced, one thing we don't have any record of her ever having talked about was Matthias. But mm. as she got more and more experienced, then her speeches would often, when she got into the, the meat of it, uh, would reflect things she had heard other people say that she would pull apart. Mm. Um, and one of the, the some wonderful examples, she also, because she knew so much scripture, I mean, for a woman who couldn't read and write, she could quote scripture. Um, and there's a, a wonderful story. Um, she's in the uh, area of Western Massachusetts. It's an anti-slavery meeting. She's living in Northampton at that time. And the person who's in charge of the meeting is Lydia Mariah Child. Um, and and Sojourner is in the audience. Now she's not hasn't spoken, but she's she's there in the audience. And um one of the speakers is uh, a man named uh, an abolitionist named Stephen Foster, and he speaks. Um and then one of the men in the audience is a minister, and he stands up and uh and he berates the abolitionists and says that, you know. Uh, I haven't heard anything moving here at all. And everyone told me that I should come and hear the abolitionists speak because I will be very, very moved. And I haven't heard anything moving. All I have heard is uh, a bunch of words from women and jackasses. And, of course, the crowd is shocked. And then Sojourner stands up, and this is this is one of her. This is not a speech, but this is this is an example of her amazing uh, uh, biblical knowledge mm. and and her uh, capacity to just change the tone. So she stands up and 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 walks to the front, and she says, "Mrs. Chairman, I'd like to have a word." And um, and she says, "This man is very angry." And uh, I know the story. I've heard the story. If he's an intelligent man. He can read the Bible. I've heard the story of another minister who got 
very angry at an ass who could talk. And and then she told the story out of, uh, I think it's the book of Numbers between Balaam, mm-hmm. who's a, a, a Moab uh, priest who is uh, supposed to go someplace and God doesn't want him to go, so he puts the angel Gabriel in the road, and Balaam keeps whipping his uh, jackass to go on the road, and the jackass can see the angel, but Balaam can't, and he keeps whipping the jackass, whipping him, and the jackass won't go. And finally, um, the angel is revealed to Balaam, and so what Sojourner Truth says as she tells the story, she says, I knew another man who got mighty mad at an ask and talk who could talk. Uh, and I would and she tells the story and she says, So I just want to remind the man and the audience that it was the ass and not the minister who saw the angel. And the crowd just went wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So th- this is an example of uh, one of her ways of getting the attention of the crowd. And, and the other thing is that's interesting to me, I've, I've, uh, when she spoke to African Americans, um, as she did in the 1850s, for example, in New York City, by 1850, she's well known and uh, people who sort of took exception to her in the 1830s in New York City are now going to hear her. And so she speaks, one talk uh, that she gives at Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is uh, recorded in um, the New York Tribune, she, it's, it's a long speech, and, uh, and she begins in the usual way with uh, the prayer and the singing and so on. And then she is very personal and talks about what it's like to speak to her own people. And she reminds them that when she lived there, nobody, black people, paid any attention to her, that most of her work that she did as a reformer, as Isabella, was in the five points among sex workers and drunks and people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and But that's what she did. And then she says, you know, I'm... Um, And she talks about her background from a rural Dutch background uh, and that she was not accepted. Um, So she basically sort of critiques them for kind of their elitism. Um, And then she gets on the black ministers. And she, uh, because at this point in the 1850s, the Methodist church has uh, denied the pulpit to black women um, and has denied uh, ordination to anybody who cannot read and write. And so um, people like her, there are a few black women preachers who um, can't preach in a building. They preach out in the open air. That's why they do it. So she criticizes them at these black ministers uh, with their um, Greek-crammed heads um, will not allow the Word of God to be... Uh, spoken uh, by somebody like me. So she criticizes them um, in that speech. And then she also talks to them about the city. Um, 
and how important it is not to bow to the filth of the city. Um, and and then, and and this is really the the I think is really the punchline. She talks to them about activism and how important it is. And and you get the sense from what she's saying that uh, even though there's a huge abolitionist movement going on in the 1850s, um, and there are lots of black uh, abolitionist speakers and so on, in cities, people are not, on, on a daily, daily basis, are not as active as, as they could be or should be. And so mm. she critiques them on that, too. Um, and And that's important because... There's an underground railroad. I mean, after 1850, when the fugitive slave laws passed, uh, the underground railroad is very vibrant. Uh, mm. And so she, in speaking to her own people, is admonishing them for not taking a more activist role. Um, and um, it's a long speech. Mm. So uh, that's her with her own people. Um but yeah, there were these elements in a, an anti-slavery speech: humor, pathos, uh, experience, um, and uh, and you had to tell a story. Mm. So um, she was she was really she was a master uh, at this. Let's talk about one of those places where she did feel at home uh, in the Northampton Association, um, which is such an interesting episode of her life in part because of all the people she meets there and and you write about the isms that were in the air at Northampton in the 1840s what was that community like and what were some of those isms the ideas the what was it like to be in Northampton in that period Northampton was a very special place uh, I mean of all of the utopian communities we don't know much about harmonia the one she was uh, involved in in Michigan, mm. but we do have a lot of information on Northampton, and of course that's where she wrote her narrative. Uh, but Northampton had, first of all, the it was founded by William Lord Garrison, the head of the American Anti-Slavery Society, founded by his brother-in-law, um, and and that made it sort of an entrepot for anti-slavery. Um, it was a Northampton, Massachusetts, was a place that slaveholders liked to go for vacation, um, and so the commune was sort of on the outside. I guess you'd say it would be uh, north of the city of Northampton, um, and the people who founded it were from southeastern Connecticut. That's where Garrison's uh, brother-in-law was from. And then a number of his in-laws uh, went to Northampton as well. And um, it was founded by abolitionists. They wanted a commune where they could have open discussions. Uh, and they also wanted a, a sort of a, a region that would be in between the East and the West, mm. with the West being not... I mean, not not even the Midwest, that is to say, not Ohio and Michigan, but West meaning Western New York. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of the way they saw the, the uh, anti-slavery dichotomy. So you had Boston 
And then you had New York, but New York was in the hands of a more conservative anti-slavery group um, who did not allow women to speak. So the next headquarters after Boston was really Rochester. Mm -hmm. So Northampton was in between. Um, And for individuals leaving Boston and that area to go into um, the Midwest to speak, then Northampton was a stopping place. Uh, For them going that way, it was also a stopping place if they were going to go north. Um, It was also an important underground railroad entrepot. So all of the reasons that someone would want to be in Northampton as as sort of the the core of anti-slavery in the East uh, were there for for Sojourner. So um, everybody stopped there. Uh, Frederick Douglass, um, Charles Lennox Riemann, Abby Kelly. uh, It was uh, the place where you went for all kinds of of uh, activities. It was also a place that had, I guess you'd say, the the core of reformism there more than any other of the uh, utopian communities because even though it was founded by abolitionists, they welcome other reforms as well so that it wasn't specifically a spiritualist commune. It wasn't specifically a transcendentalist commune. Uh, it was sort of a commune's commune. Mm. Uh, so everybody was there. The 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 Graham bread people were there. You know the the food reformers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the health the the water cure was there. Uh, David Ruggles had his water cure uh, concern there. Uh, John Brown's wife was at the water cure with Sojourner Truth. Um, so Northampton was the entrepot of, of communalism. Everybody stopped there. Um, mm. So that's, the, I mean, that's, that's the way I would explain it. And it was, uh, if you look at the Northampton records uh, and, and the kind of people who came, it was also integrated. That's another important part of Northampton. Most of these communes were not integrated, and that wasn't because they uh, did not allow African-Americans. It's just because African-Americans didn't go there. Um, Sojourner, when she left New York, she was headed for Fruitlands. And the people in um, one of the Quaker uh, places where she stopped in Long Island told her that she didn't want, Fruitlands was not the place for her. And then she said, okay, well, then I'll go to the Shakers. Uh, And they said, no, that's not the place either. Um, The Shakers is, is thoroughly religious, and it has a religious a, a very doctrinaire religious impulse. Um, Brook Farm was intellectual. The Oneida community was a, a you know, multiple marriage for men. Uh, so they all had their causes. Northampton, it, you didn't have to have a specific cause, mm. uh, but you had to be an abolitionist. Um, so it was really the, the, the center of uh, of the communes and and everybody went there even people from um Europe the first thing they wanted to do when they were studying uh, uni- utopianism was go to northampton mm. so it's 
in Northampton where she meets people like Amy Post uh, from Rochester. It's in this this web of relationships um, from Northampton where she meets Amy Post, who's at the beginning with the Fox sisters and what's often pointed to as the beginning of uh, modern spiritualism there. But she also meets Andrew Jackson Davis, right? That's um, right. Can you remember what their conversations were like? Um, I don't know. I know she was very close to uh, his wife. Mm. Um, she and he wasn't there that long. Actually, right. she met Amy Post. She didn't meet Amy Post in Northampton. She met Amy Post in Rochester in 1851. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some friction between Andrew Jackson Davis and um, people who sort of got into spiritualism through the Fox Sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thought that Davis's um, spiritualism was more self-serving, as not as authentic. Um, but that was just just differences. Um, the Fox Sisters were from Western New York, and so people who uh, came to spiritualism as a practice, uh, as a reform, through that uh, venue, just sort of gravitated toward. Her, her. Well, there were two of them, uh, the Fox sisters, mm-hmm. uh, and then Andrew Jackson Davis. That was a different venue, so it really depended on who you got your your spiritualism uh, through. And uh, the the Fox sisters were right outside of Rochester, so that was sort of the beginning. But even before that, I mean, even be, even before she met Sojourner, met the Fox sisters, she had met Andrew Jackson Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he would come to uh, to Northampton, so she was already uh, into the spiritualist network, um, and um, they sat. You know, Sojourner was the um, what was her role? She was the head of the laundry at Northampton, mm-hmm. uh, even though as as one uh, um, person who was taking her place, she was hardly ever there. Uh, one of the things about her being head of the laundry was that when she wasn't there, uh, a lot of the men would do the laundry for her uh, because she was often uh, gone giving speeches. But one of the things that uh, she did was in uh, the community hall, which is where they all met, is that she had, as far as I can remember, two conversations on spiritualism with Davis um, that and, and this comes from a group of letters from uh, the Stetson family, who are one of the founding families of Northampton. Mm. Uh, that uh, and she says something to the effect of Andrew Jackson Davis and the Sojourner really went at it um, <laughs> tonight. And she doesn't say what they went at it on, um, but who knows? Mm-hmm. And I know there are records of. Andrew Jackson Davis later being disdainful of what he calls, you know, the spirit rapping and, and it's not the embrace of his harmonial philosophy and it's not, you know, the uh, embracing trans lectures, but people looking for the rappings and the table turnings and the kind of physical manifestations. And he, in some cases, uh, pushes back against that as being a kind of a true spiritualism. So that's an interesting point you make about, um, people on that side, Amy Post, who is good friends with the Foxes and and Sojourner and their network of spiritualist believers, that they would find Davis to be 
I'm trying to remember the word you used. Was it disdainful or something? That's interesting. Well, they were more, their, their spiritualism, as far as they were concerned, was more authentic. Um, he was not so much into mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sojourner was a medium. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she, she was uh, adamant about that. And um, so was Isaac Post. So they believed very strongly uh, in, in that, uh, that the, the medium part, the, the rapping. And they also believed in that, uh, the, that their seances uh, included rappings. Um, and, you know, I think also some of it was uh, their political orientations mm. uh, between Davis and, and, uh, and Davis was certainly a, a reformer. Um, but and, and aside from political and by political, I mean that they were basically in competition. Uh, spiritualism for the uh, practicing abolitionists, the activist abolitionism, was not something that consumed them. It it had its place, but it was not um, the uh, end all. The way it was for Andrew Jackson Davis, mm. um, they they certainly took it seriously. They had their seances. Um, it was actually, I think, it was Isaac Post who channeled John Quincy Adams, mm-hmm. um, and so they they did strongly believe in it, but. Uh, but they had other causes as well. One of the most important ones was, of course, the the, uh, the breaks within the Quaker church that they were dealing with. So um, their causes were much more diverse than Andrew Jackson Davis. You mentioned that uh, Sojourner's vision wasn't as narrowly confined as Andrew Jackson Davis's. Um, how important were women's conventions and anti-slavery conventions for Sojourner during the 1850s? Because... Yeah, she's not just following these the spiritualist circles. She's preaching abolition. She's preaching. Um, she's part of the women's movement, and 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 she's doing religious teaching at the same time as these other things. How how important were these conventions for the life of the movements she was involved in? Well, the conventions were uh, her network. They were very important. Um, I mean, that was her life. Spiritualism was part of her very being. It, it later, you know, like when the this she starts regularly attending spiritualist conventions after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, she's I mean she's she's at all the women's rights conventions when she's in town, when she's in the area, uh, and of course at every anti-slavery convention until she moves to the east, uh, to the west. Sorry, and mm-hmm. then uh, so she is deeply involved and. And I think it's important to understand that spiritualism was so germane to her that um, as as one um, um, newspaper asked her, uh, when did she join the spiritualists? And she said, but there's nothing to join. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's just me. Um, so, but then they started having spiritualist conventions and she would go to those. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, 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 a section in, in my book where they are, uh, there's an anti-slavery convention in Michigan. Mm-hmm. It's in 1857. And, um, t- 
to give you a sense of how important spiritualism was, this is an anti-slavery convention. Uh, it's being run by Sojourner and her friend from Ohio, Josephine Griffin, and her friend from Rochester, Lucy Coleman. So they're running this, and then it, the progressive friends in Michigan are also involved. Um, and they're making speeches, and they're singing, and so on. And then an anti-slavery uh, activist, a woman, gets up, and she gives a spiritualist speech. Um, and the newspaper editor, uh, whose name is Marius Robinson, really tries to write it down in the anti-slavery bugle. I can't understand a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> but there it is in print. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and she's channeling all of these people right in the middle of this anti-slavery convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, she sits down, and, and then Sojourner Truth gets up and speaks, and um, she does not mention the woman's uh, spiritualist uh, speech. She talks about anti-slavery and, and her her own children. and um, But then the next speaker, and I think it's... Uh, Wright, I can't remember his first name, um, Henry C. Wright, mm. uh, he goes back to the whole spiritualist uh, outpouring that this woman had. Um, and so it's it's really, it's kind of like embedded in there, uh, even though uh, I don't know when they had the first spiritualist convention. Uh, I'll have to look and look at, because this, this new book that I'm working on, spiritualism is 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 very much... A part of it, I'm spending a lot of time looking at Cora Hatch. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, um, awesome. Yeah, I mean, she's 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 amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it was you know it was just something that they all accepted. I mean, everybody except Frederick Douglass. Mm. Um, they couldn't. He couldn't. He would go to the. He started going to the conventions after the Civil War. But uh, I read a few letters uh, that he wrote to uh, Amy Post. This is like in the late 1840s, and he's, you know, saying, I just, I, I just can't, I can't get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's one of the few. I mean, the other uh, black male abolitionists uh, are, many of whom are ministers, mm-hmm. uh, are, are very devoted to it. You mentioned uh, Josephine Griffin. Um, after... Well, after Sojourner sells her Northampton property in 1857 and moves out to Battle Creek, the Harmonia community there, mm-hmm. um, she, again, is still traveling. It's not like she, she lives right. there, but she, oh, has yeah. a, she has an illness during the Civil War years, right? Yes. Um, but then she comes back, and in the years after the war, she's very involved with Josephine Griffin in the Freedmen's Village. Mm-hmm. and the National Freedmen's Relief Association. Can you talk about the work that she was doing there? She was uh, a counselor for the freed people, um, and she was uh, both in Washington when Josephine Griffin was the assistant director of uh, the Bureau for Washington, and, mm-hmm. and, and they had that house on Capitol uh, Avenue or Capitol Hill. They and just um, Sojourner uh, worked there as a counselor for the freed freed women, and then before that, so that was like in, that was that was after the death of Lincoln. 
Before that, there's when she meets Lincoln, that's when she's at Friedman's Village, and she's she's doing mm-hmm. she's very important there because these are all uh, women and men and children who were slaves, and um, they needed uh, someone who could talk uh, the language that they could understand. That is someone who had been enslaved, uh, mm-hmm. and she was uh, a counselor at Friedman's Village for about a year and a half. And that was important. That was when uh, the, vil- the Friedman's Village, they built homes, uh, little, they weren't really homes, but they were, um, well, I guess they were village homes for them. Um, and and Sojourner Truth set up a church. Um, she asked people, congressmen, to come like when they had uh, celebrations, uh, they they and they would they would come and uh, and see the progress that the freed people uh, were making, uh, and she also was because she was you know she was a she was an African Dutch woman she was kind of a taskmaster she was sort of no nonsense so um, hmm. she would chastise the freed people uh, for their behavior um, and. Um, at some point, it made her unpopular with them, but she was very, very strict uh, in terms of what uh, you should and shouldn't do. And uh, also, they they were very religious, so there was never any question about them going to church. Uh, but Sojourner wanted uh, circumspect behavior, uh, and um, the difference between enslaved people who were born and raised in the North and enslaved people who were born and raised in the South uh, could be considerable. And, um, and, and Sojourner also was raised in a very sort of industrious type of a, 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 a home life where everything is all cleanliness. And um, she promoted that, and sometimes they didn't like it. They thought she was too officious. Um, so she stayed there for a year and a half, and then... She went to uh, help with Josephine in the uh, in the city in Washington City, and that was. Uh, I mean, I think that's where she really thrived because she taught sewing and uh, and other domestic arts to the women, and then she went to Friedman's Hospital uh, mm-hmm. and worked at Friedman's Hospital, um, which was going to become Howard University's medical school. She did that for a year and a half. At the same time, she is, along with Josephine, setting up this employment office. I, I just found that was that was just so fascinating. Um, mm. That their their commitment was such, so that they were looking at every avenue possible uh, to place people, and I mean just all kinds of ways. She was active in in the court system when the the apprentice system, I, I did, I, I, they took this out of the book, but the apprentice system in the state of Maryland uh, provided that uh, planters could take people's children and, uh, and put them to work. And so she uh, went to court to challenge that, and, of course, she challenged mm-hmm. uh, the streetcar arrangements um, because Lincoln had desegregated the streetcars before he passed away, and um, the conductors were not honoring it, um, and so she had a big court case with that. 
Right, because she gets thrown off, right? She gets thrown off, right, yeah. Um, and and has dislocates her shoulder. Mm-hmm. And the Freedman uh, Hospital doctors go to court with her to testify. Hmm. Um, so she's, and, and then she she's, once they are transporting people, trying to get them settled elsewhere, because the city of Washington has 40,000 African-Americans in it. As a result of the war, um, and there are not enough jobs uh, for them. There's not enough space. Um, they're living in alleys. Uh, the, you know, basically, they have nothing, uh, nothing over their heads. So she and Josephine are trying to get them out of uh, Washington, and so she takes um, train loads of them to Rochester. And even to Michigan, mm-hmm. um, and they called them Sojourner's Trains. So, I mean, she's, she's really amazing uh, during this period, mm-hmm. after, after having almost died. Right, being so sick during the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you also found some fascinating, you described some wonderful letters between Cora Hatch and Amy Post when Cora comes and stays with or, or visits Sojourner at the Freedmen's Hospital. Do we know much about uh, her relationship with Cora? In the book, I talk about this uh, abolitionist singing group, the Hutchesons. Mm. Um, the Hutchesons were uh, the most popular folk singers in America, but they were also radical abolitionists. And, uh, and they were good friends of Sojourner's. They spent a lot of time at Northampton. And... There, the, there's one Abby. Abby Hutchison is the one uh, young lady in the group. They're from they're they're from New Hampshire, mm. and Abby married, uh, maybe right after or during the Civil War, maybe just before. She married a wealthy guy in um, New Jersey, I think. And after Sojourner moved to the West, when she would go east, she had a certain uh, a certain places where she would stay. And one of them was Abby Hutchison's home. Uh, and Abby was a spiritualist. And, uh, and Abby uh, had Cora Hatch at her house a lot. Mm. And Cora and Sojourner met at Abby Hutchison, whatever her, her married name was, I can't remember, uh, at, at uh, Abby Hutchison's home. Mm. And they met there several times. Uh, that I found because when Sojourner was, uh, after she got well and she said, I'm determined to go to Washington and see the freedom of my people, she stayed with Abby Hutchinson and Cora was also there. Mm. And then Cora went to Washington and uh, and Sojourner was there. It's a big African-American church um, and um, the African-Americans loved Cora Hatch. Um and so she spoke a lot at their churches, and Sojourner was there when she spoke. Um, so they, and then, the, well, then when the the conventions began, when the spiritual spiritualist conventions begin after the Civil War, there's one in Rochester that uh, I, I, I I'm recalling. Um, both Cora Hatch and Sojourner Truth were on the platform. In the Amy Post papers in the University of Rochester, there are three or four letters. Mm-hmm. From Cora to Amy. Yeah, and those um, are the ones you describe in the book. I just right. loved finding that detail. That's amazing. 
Yeah. 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 They were, they were very close. It's an amazing network of people. Mm -hmm. In the, uh, in the, in the later sixties and then in the seventies, uh, one of the things you write about the sojourner was doing a lot was traveling with petitions for land for the freedmen. Mm-hmm. Um, in the midst of the other conventions and the preaching that she continues to do, it seems like those petitions became really the focus of kind of her final years, um, the energy that she was putting into those. Is that how you would describe kind of the last decade of her life? I, I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I mean, the, especially taking the people to Michigan, um, that was, I mean, they remembered her, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they even, they even talk about where she let them off, um, mm-hmm. and who she, you know, set them up with and her network. But I think the culminating part of her life was, uh, the Kansas movement. Mm-hmm. I think when she was trying to get, it, it was it, one thing that was for sure. It was always about the betterment of the freed people, and and that's why she wanted to get them out of Washington. That movement to get them settled in um, places like Michigan and New York is one movement, and so she does that until like eighteen sixty seven, eighteen sixty eight. Then she goes home. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, is that she's old and she doesn't have a home. She's got her house in Harmonia, but her daughter and her family, uh, they're living there. Mm-hmm. So she goes home because she's going to try and build a house for herself. Um, and then, then when that's settled, then she starts the movement to Kansas. And that's when the petitions come. Mm-hmm. So um, the petition movement is uh, about Kansas. And that is, I think that is the culminating point of her life, although she continues to be active. She's very active in the uh, anti-capital uh, punishment movement and the um, temperance movement. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, in in terms of her service to African Americans, it is the petition uh, movement to uh, create a black homeland in the West. Because mm-hmm. black homeland is is the mantra, right? And then it, it first starts with trying to get them settled in uh, in in the West, that is the Midwest, Western New York, and then uh, Michigan. And also, I should point out that uh, another group of of uh, these women take people to the east as well so the idea is to provide a homeland and then when that's not as viable then they uh focus on uh, the kansas movement mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. in the 1870s and so that that occupies her for the most part uh in the 1870s and then mm-hmm. in 1883, she dies. Yeah. But well, when she coming... dies, before she dies, she gives a speech to the Michigan legislature. Hmm. Um, and that is on, it's either, I think it's, on, it's either on capital punishment or temperance. I can't remember. I think it's capital punishment. Um, yeah, because she has that great uh, statement where um, she speaks out against 
uh, executions. And she says, if you want to hang something, hang whiskey. Because <laughs> that causes more damage than anything else. Mm. Um, and uh, and then two years later, she she passes away. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And even that quote, because with the life of the Fox sisters in particular, we're going to be talking about how bedeviled they were by alcoholism towards the end of their life. Yeah. Even in that period. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, the one question that I really forgot to ask you was about the Akron Convention, which becomes so kind of mythologized with, you know, the kind of the misquote, <laughs> the misquoted line. Um, can you give a brief account of the Akron Convention and how Sojourner's kind of most famous line actually falls short of expressing her amazing, really defiant character. Yeah, well, she went to Akron um, after, well, before she she was in in uh, Western New York for the uh, 1851 anti-slavery convention, mm-hmm. which was held in Syracuse, and and then then um, she stayed in the area, and and she was living uh, and spending uh, her time with the Post family. And Amy told her that there was going to be a convention. And then the Ohio women who were at the Syracuse convention, they were just blown away by her. And they said, would you come to Ohio and, uh, and give some anti-slavery lectures? And that, along with what Amy told her about the women's convention, because, you know, the, the, the uh, Year before, 1850, they had had the first national women's convention. Mm-hmm. And she was a speaker. Um, and so, you know, she was already on the network. And there was a lot of controversy because some of the white women felt that uh, they were turning the women's rights movement into an anti-slavery movement. Um, so there was that conversation going on. And um, she went to... Um, Ohio at the behest of uh, the abolitionists, but also to go to this convention that Amy had told her about. Mm. Uh, and she um, and re- she wrote that, or, or had someone write that beautiful letter to Amy, you know, saying that, you know, what she did. She went and hung out with the colored people in Cleveland, and then she went to uh, Ohio, uh, Akron, and, uh, and met wonderful people, just like uh, Amy said she would. Um, and and you know as far as she was concerned there was no controversy, so um, but it was it was very telling, um, especially in terms of the attitudes uh, toward abolition and merging abolition and women's rights, mm. um, which it, it, it it's hard to believe but that was the problem is um, that women some women saw that uh, they should the two causes should not be connected. That's what uh, was the conventional wisdom at the Akron meeting, um, mm. because the person who had arranged it was Jane Swisham, who's the same person who had criticized the first woman's national convention for um, talking about abolition there. Um, and so when Sojourner went, she... Um, was there with her books. She, her book had just been published, so she was going to sell books. And it's really interesting. 
when she got there, the secretary of the meeting um, saw her, claimed they didn't have any idea who she was, were embarrassed that there was a colored woman there. Um, And when she saw them, she, being Sojourner Truth, went right over to them, introduced herself, and said, you know, I'm here to uh, uh, attend the convention and to sell some books. And um, and so they bought her books, and they were kind of embarrassed about her. Um, but they bought her books anyway. And the next day they had the convention. And Sojourner, when she wasn't on uh, the platform, she liked to sit at the foot of the platform. And that way... Uh, she could interject things <laughs> <laughs> and and also she could say, can I say something? Um, so that's what she did. This went on for a day and uh, it was quite a volatile uh, meeting because uh, a lot of the men, there were a lot of men there and they uh, were, a woman's rights was a very unpopular cause. Mm. And, uh, and so they were challenging the women and Sojourner was answering and giving good answers, too. And so finally, on the second day, she couldn't stand it. And so she asked Frances Gage, who was the uh, moderator and the president of the convention, if she could speak. And um, Gage, Gage was a good abolitionist, a Westerner, and a good abolitionist. But, you know, abolition, women abolitionists have to be divided into various categories. And she was a good political abolitionist. Mm. Um, which meant that basically she was a free soil person. Uh, and f- she hesitated, but finally let her speak. Um, and we know, in spite of what Frances Gage says and, and, uh, and also what's in the history of women's suffrage, um, that she changed the whole tone of the meeting. Um, and in spite of what, what I, I should point out, in spite of what my colleague uh, Carlton maybe says is that, you know, none of this really happened. It did happen. Um, and she did change the tone of the meeting. One of uh, her uh, friends, soon to be friends, uh, who was a student at Oberlin, a New Yorker, she and a couple of her girlfriends rented a buggy and drove to the meeting. Mm. So they they gave an account of what happened. Uh, and that's a firsthand account, and and also Marius Robinson's account of it. But we at at the time um, that this was that the history of women's suffrage um, discussion of Sojourner Truth and the speech came out, which was at the turn uh, of the twentieth century. That was the only record of it we had, aside from what Frances Gage wrote twelve years later in 1863, which she published. Mm. Um, but we had no firsthand account. So when uh, Sojourner spoke, I mean, it was it was really profound. Uh, and she basically established Jesus Christ as a feminist um, and basically put on record her own labor uh, as a woman and as a woman who worked like a man um, and essentially said that, you know, women had as much right to everything that men had. Um, and, and she put it in 
practical terms, but she also put it in spiritual terms. And um, and it was it was a, a profound answer to these men. As um, what is her name, the Oberlin student, um, who uh, actually after the meeting went on an anti-slavery tour with Sojourner mm-hmm. Truth, um, and she gives an account of it. And um, and we know, in spite of what uh, the professor who disagrees that it was a powerful speech. Um, and and we also know that men were opposed to women having their rights. So it is controversial because of that theme, Aren't I a Woman?, which is uh, Francis Gage's rhetorical phrase. But Francis Gage, in fairness to her, was a novelist, a short story writer, uh, and she was competing with Harriet Beecher Stowe. So she wanted to give this a rhetorical flourish. Um, But basically what she says in her speech in 1863, when she, the first time she articulates it, is so close to what Sojourner Truth said that you can't argue with that. The only thing you can argue with is the phrase, ain't I a woman? Um, And the newspapers of the time who uh, basically recounted what happened all say something very mm-hmm. similar. She said she was a woman. Um, I think that's what the, the uh, New York uh, Tribune says. Um, but they all have some phrase in there, some passage where she addresses, well, I'm a woman and I do this and I do that. So, you know, I mean, Gage uh, simplified it and, you know, gave it repetition. But, you know, to me, that's kind of harmless. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, the idea is the same. If you read Francis Gage's speech and then you read the article in the Anti-Slavery Bugle um, that Marius Ro- uh, Robinson wrote, you really won't, f- other than that phrase... Uh, the spirit is still, and there, no, there are a couple of things. Um, the the, um, and I know she got this from Stowe. She says that uh, Sojourner had thirteen children. That's right out of Harriet yeah. Beecher Stowe. Um, and 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 when when Stowe wrote that, Sojourner said, you know, I, Mrs. Stowe lays it on <laughs> Yeah, and she, yeah. So, she, yeah. So she she took that. I mean, Francis Gage took that. Uh, that passage from the um, uh, article that Stowe had written about uh, Sojourner Truth. But other than that, it's, you know, it it is the same, Mm. you know, the same spirit, same information. Um, But what's interesting, most of all to me, is obviously there weren't any black women there. Uh, Otherwise, they would not have been so shocked when they Mm. saw her. Uh, and the, the other thing that seems clear is that there's not a whole lot, it wasn't not a whole lot of contact, regionally speaking, between black and white abolitionists, uh, as well as women's rights activists, because they didn't seem to know who Sojourner Truth was. That, and I found that really shocking. Um, but that may be why the uh, abolitionists in Ohio wanted her to come. Yeah. And one thing we know 
when she left Akron, everybody knew who yeah. she was. Yeah. Well, it's been two hours. I want to be respectful of your time. Okay, yeah. Can I ask you uh, one final question to wrap up? Uh, and you kind of touched this at the top of our conversation, too. But just as we're thinking about Sojourner Truth's life, how important is studying spiritualism to understanding Sojourner Truth? And how important is studying Sojourner Truth to understanding spiritualism? Um, spiritualism was very dear to Sojourner. Uh, Sojourner was uh, a woman who was born uh, at the tip of the 18th century, um, and she was part of a different world. I mean, in a way, she's almost part of the colonial world. Mm. Um, and for her spirituality and and that makes her very close to africanness or what we call africanity and and africanity is the core of it is spirituality so it to me it it's almost like a no brainer um spiritualism how is that different from spirituality except that people people want to get in touch uh, with loved ones who have gone on. And in African spirituality, that is taken as a given, uh, that uh, your loved ones, not only do they not leave, they protect you. They mm. surround you. So they're part of you. Um, and so spiritualism for her was an extension of that. Uh, and some of the differences, I, I, I suppose people would say, uh, would be that the, the spiritualists in America tacked on certain responsibilities to spiritualism um, and, and certain social problems to spiritualism. The spiritualism mm. that arose uh, in America a lot of it had to do with, uh, as I, I would say, pain and loss. Um, I mean, I think that's how uh, a lot of it began, is especially with women, because it's important to understand spiritualism is very much a part of women's rights. And the amount of death in society, the, the fact that uh, your child was just as likely to die as it was to live, um, one of the abolitionists had uh, 10 children and the first five died. Mm. And, uh, and that's a tremendous amount of, uh, of stress. Mm. And one of the things that spiritualism allowed was it was a release of that stress because you had the capacity to think that you were in touch uh, with these uh, uh, children. And not only were you in touch with them, but they were happy. Mm. Uh, no matter how they had suffered from these horrible childhood diseases that they died from, so it was it was, spiritualism was connecting life and death, um, and 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 I think that that that's important. Spiritualism was important to life, and women, um, I think, needed that 
and not only women, but men as well. You know, Abraham Lincoln, after his son Willie died, went to a spiritualist. Um, Mm -hmm. His wife convinced him to go, and she became interested in spiritualism because her, um, what would you call this woman, dressmaker? Uh, She was more than a dressmaker. She was a confidant. She was a dressmaker. She dressed her hair, but she was a former slave. Mm. And and her son uh, had passed for white so he could join the Union Army at a time when they weren't taking black people. Yeah. And and he was killed almost immediately. And that was her only child. And so spiritualism was very important to her. And then after Willie Lincoln died, then she introduced Mary Todd Lincoln to spiritualism. And 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 Mary Todd Lincoln took it very seriously and even got Abraham Lincoln to to go to one. Um, it, it didn't relieve him, but it was a form of relief. It's a form of solace. It was a form of faith. Uh, mm. And so I think that uh, spiritualism is really important to understanding the lives of these people and their activism. Thank you. That's beautiful. Hey, folks, it's Aaron here. I hope today's interview helped you deepen your understanding of everything involved in the world of spiritualism. But we're not done yet. We have more interviews to share with you, so stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear a preview of next week's interview. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Next time on Unobscured. The Catholic Church in New Orleans supports the Confederacy very strongly during the Civil War. There's this one very outspoken abolitionist priest who's threatened with excommunication and has his church shut down. Priests regularly would refuse to give Eucharist to black Catholic men in Union uniforms. There would be ceremonies. The spirits would refer to these ceremonies blessing Confederate flags during the Catholic Mass. So the Catholic Church locally is in support of the Confederacy even during the Union occupation of the city. And the spirits deliver tons of messages about the materialism and greed of the Catholic Church and its priests. That the Catholic Church, it wants money and secrets, money and secrets, money and secrets. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.